Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. Well, you guys can take a seat. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at Revision. I'm excited to be here this morning. First of all, just want to say welcome back to Clive Learning Academy. Who knew it could get any prettier than it already was? You got new paint on the walls. Some of the doors are painted. Same holes in the tile floor, though. We can't, can't win them all. But either way, we're glad to be back to where it all started. I remember just about seven years ago, driving down with some friends from Minnesota, uh, where I'm from, where Mike was my youth pastor, and we were so excited to come down and support our friends who were launching this church. And so we came and we helped set everything up Saturday night for the first time, and it was just absolute chaos. Like there are people, so many people just running around this gym with no idea what to do, but very uh, determined. We just wanted to help, but we didn't quite know how yet. And it was, it was chaos, but it all happened. We got everything set up and uh, Sunday morning came and we had service and it was great. I loved it. And after service, we got to hang out with all of our friends down here and go have lunch. And then some uh, my friends and I, we hopped in our car to head back up to Minnesota. And Mike, he hopped in his car and contemplated all of his life choices why did I start this church? Why is it happening? Uh, it's the biggest, biggest mistake in my life, maybe. Uh, but here we are, like just a few weeks away from turning seven years old. And just to think of like all the incredible things God has done like in, around, and outside of these walls through this church, is just, it's mind-blowing. And so welcome back to Clive. We're glad to be back here. Uh, I'm excited for this morning. Last week, we closed out our Ordinary Heroes series where Mikey walked us through the book of Philemon and the story of, of Onesimus. Uh, if you missed last week, I highly encourage you to check it out. It was super powerful for me to hear, and my hope is it, it was or it would be for you as well. Uh, but today, we're kicking off a brand new series, and it's called One Small Step, if you couldn't gather that from behind me already. Uh, but we're going to talk about how small steps, they add up to make a big difference over time, uh, which isn't necessarily a new concept to a lot of us. Like, in fact, I'm sure this has been explained to us in one way or another, like whether it was in sports, like growing up, I played hockey and I knew my coaches told me, my dad told me, if you just practice stick handling for 30 minutes a day, it's going to make a big difference on the ice. Or if you're memorizing lines for a play or words for a choir song, like 15 minutes a day is a lot better than just a couple hours the day of the show. Same with studying for a test or practicing for piano lessons or learning how to drive, prepping for a new job, or making changes to your diet or exercising or whatever. Like small steps over time add up to make a big difference. About a year ago, my wife and I, we bought our first house together and it was, it was a nightmare. It was awful. Uh, it was in the dead heat of high prices and low interest rates and we'd been looking for months and months. We had, we'd been denied so many offers. Uh, we were offering way more than houses were worth only to be outbid by like twenty, thirty, even $40,000, which we were, just, we were never going to compete with. And so we were feeling pretty defeated, which was fun. Uh, we had a good time. It was great for our marriage. Uh, but we'd, we'd go, we'd look at this house that was already overpriced. And the next, uh, we'd submit this offer, we'd think like, okay, this is, 
would like this house, I guess, enough, like we could maybe see some potential in renovating. Then we take the time to submit an offer that was higher than the already too high asking price, and the next day we'd be told no, and then we'd laugh, and we'd laugh. It was so much fun. It was a good time. But we, we got to the point where we were just wondering, like, okay, are we going to have to expand our search to, like, include townhomes or condos or just rent for a little while longer? Because the deadline to move out of our rental was quickly approaching, and then just by the grace of God, this house came onto the market, this yellow and pink beauty. And it, it, it truly, it was a gift from God. It was perfect. It hadn't been touched really since it was built in the 80s. It had water damage all over the place, uh, a lot of spots like that. Um, the appliances, they were kind of all moldy, covered in rust, uh, unusable, which again, it was perfect for us. The only problem is it was out of our price range. And uh, I, I tried, I called our realtor and I was like, is there any way that we can just offer less so it's in our price range? And she essentially, she just kind of said like, that'd be maybe even a little offensive or probably just pointless overall in this market. And it was hard to disagree with her after what we had been through. But nine days later, it was still on the market. Like all this stuff was scaring people away. And so we're like, all right, we, we got to do it. We offered 10,000 less than asking and they said, yes. Again, truly a gift from God, because not only that, they wanted to sell it as is with all the junk that was in it, but uh, after the inspection, we got them to take some more off of the price as well, which was incredible. And we were so eager to get into that house. Like for the previous 14 months since Elise and I had gotten married, we were so fortunate to be renting from some family friends who blessed us so much by allowing us to live in a house that they owned for really, really cheap. And so that allowed us to save to be able to renovate the house that we would buy someday. And so from the very beginning uh, of getting our own house, day one, we were just we were ripping that thing apart. Just tearing out the floor, the baseboards, some walls, building up the fireplace, adding lighting, uh, changing the shape of the ceiling in some areas, painting, uh, finishing. I, I built our kitchen table. We tried to just put everything back together. And it was so fun for me to learn all of these new skills. I was so excited and, and loved doing this type of stuff. And uh, I'm also incredibly grateful for all of the gifted and willing friends who are electricians and carpenters by trade. So I'm not just stuck with YouTube, but I could actually make sure I was doing it all right. And I, I was able to turn our house from this, this is how it started. It's not terrible. It's dated. You can see a water stain up on the top in the popcorn ceiling. And all of those rugs and chairs are just covering huge, disgusting smelling stains. But we, we turned it from this into this, which was fun. I know, it's pretty cool. And then we turned it from this, here's another look at the dining room. Again, nothing super wrong, just dated into this. That's the table I got to build, which was super fun. And then uh, got to turn it from this, wallpaper everywhere, scraping everywhere, into this. And it was super fun to be able to do all of this work. Um, and it's funny because along the way, like there were so many long and exhausting nights where I... I did not want to do any work on the house. It, it was not fun uh, at the time. I, I didn't super enjoy it in that moment, but instead uh, I'd, I'd go for it and I'd just do what I could. I'd be pulling old cabinets or fiberglass tub inserts down to our garage's makeshift dump pile and our neighbors, they're, they're so great. They'd always come up and just ask us like, all right, so what's the project for tonight? What are you tearing apart now? And we'd get to talking and they'd encourage us and it seems like every time that we'd talk, we'd get to this point at the end or whenever that we'd, someone would end up saying like, all right, baby steps, just one step at a time. 
And, and it really is crazy. Like, it's fun to look back at all those pictures and be like, ooh, look, it's, it's fun and ooh and ah at it. But it, it's crazy to look back at some of those pictures from a year ago and think about the little things that I would just do each night and that people would help me do each night that made that happen. It was a lot of small steps that added up to make a big difference. And I'll say that's a really nice and sweet idea. Uh, Before and after pictures are nice. The before pictures, they motivate people to get to the after. The after pictures give hope to the before. But in every good set of before and after pictures, whether it's renovation or weight loss or strength training or whatever, like in every good set of before and after pictures, we're missing the most difficult part, right? We're missing out on the middle. We're familiar with the before, and, and we like the idea of the after, but the hardest part is the middle. And today, as we talk about this idea of taking one more step, a lot of us, we're, we're smart enough, we're, we're self-aware enough as human beings to, to understand where we're at, to have a good picture of that, and know that maybe we want to move forward, we want to make progress in our life, but the actual act of taking that step is sometimes one of the hardest things to do. Nobody likes living in the in-between. Like, let's actually just peel it back for a moment, rewind, and have an honest moment with everybody for a second. Like, it's, it's, again, it's super fun for me to stand up here and show you the pictures of the hard work I've done over the last year. But what I didn't show you or really tell you is that for the first four, five, even six months of living there, our house looked like some version of this. It was just junk everywhere. And so we were kind of functioning as like a one-bed, one-bath apartment in the middle of a construction zone for most of the time that we've lived in that house so far. And so it was, it worked, but it was, it's been a lot of time in the in-between. What I also failed to mention earlier is that even though we have seen some of the after and some of the success in parts of the home, there are others that are still right in the in-between. Like this is what our upstairs bathroom looks like right now. You guys can come over afterwards and help me work on it if you want. Like this, this is it. And this is what it's looked like since May. It's actually been unusable too because of plumbing issues from the previous owner since we moved in. And it's intimidating to look at that picture and imagine that somehow that there's going to be a functioning bathroom right there in the next couple of months. But again, if we can just take one small step, step after step after step, we'll get closer to where we want to be. But again, let's be honest, it doesn't always make the in-between any less difficult or frustrating, right? Like there's always tension in the in-between. You can ask my wife, maybe there's a little, sometimes there's tension in the in-between when you're doing construction projects together. It's fun. But we grow, it's good. Uh, and, And that same tension, that same tension that exists is true whether you're remodeling a house, trying to lose weight or get swole at the gym, honing a skill. And, and I'd even argue, and this is what I want to talk about today, is that that tension of the in-between affects our faith life too. Like we see where we're at, we, we know who we are, and if we think about it, we, we know we could be doing better in some areas. We may even know where we want to go and where God is calling us to be, but taking that step is never easy. Because let's face it, we don't like living in the in-between, Right? That's because it feels like, it almost feels like we have to go backwards before we can move forwards. For a lot of us, we'd rather stay put and then have to go backwards, even if going backwards means that we could go so much further than we ever imagined. Like, I, I know too many people who would rather keep drinking because the in-between of opening up and getting help is just too much for them. 
I know too many people who struggle looking at porn and even though they feel guilt and shame from that, they feel the weight of it and they know that there's freedom that they could experience through the reconciling love and forgiveness of Jesus on the other side by taking that one small step. They'd rather live in that darkness than experience the in-between. Like, I want to experience freedom, but I'm not sure I can deal with the in-between. I want to get sober. I want to stop gambling. I want to stop lusting and cheating. I want to get out of debt. I want to take steps closer to Jesus. I just don't know if I can handle stepping into the in-between. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It could be fear. It could be pride. It could be an uncertainty about how everything's going to happen exactly, maybe kind of mixed with an unsettled feeling about having this lack of control. It could even simply just be like a stubbornness of, of not really even wanting to change. But I, I look at that list of reasons, and it's not exhaustive. There's, there's plenty more that we can come up with. But I look at this list of reasons, and it's almost like I'm looking at a, a list of antonyms to the character and the love of God. Fear, it, it doesn't come from the Lord. His perfect love, it casts out fear. And when it comes to pride, like God, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. You may be uncertain and worried about giving up control and stubborn, all of that, but God, he cares about your situation. He wants what's good for you. You see, sin, it's such an interesting and like debilitating thing because even though practically we can understand where we're at, we totally understand the before picture. We understand what God is calling us to and, and the freedom and joy and peace and fulfillment that come with the after, even though we get that. Sin, it, it tells us that we shouldn't even bother, like that we're worthless. It, it convinces us that the after is unattainable and that we are our before. It says you're no better than the sin that you're stuck in. So, so don't even try to take steps closer to Jesus because there's no climbing that mountain. You, you're, you're unlovable. You're too far gone. Don't waste your time. And it's really easy to let those voices get a lot louder than the voice of truth in our head. Like when, when you can see the before and the after clearly, but you're bombarded with thoughts that make the gap seem impossible to navigate, it's really easy to let those voices convince us that it's not a journey worth taking. There's a, there's a story in the Bible that kind of addresses this problem. Actually, there, there are a lot of stories like this. But the one that I want to talk about today is one that maybe you're familiar with if you've been around the church for a while. It's about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up there. You'll find it about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through your Bible sandwich between Luke and Acts. And so take a second to find it. And while you're getting there, let me just provide a little context today to, for the story that we're about to read. So John, as he's writing, he begins this book by describing who Jesus is. Like he is God in the flesh. He's not a step below. He is God himself, the creator of the universe in the flesh, walking among us, and he's worth following. And not only that, but he has the same power as God. Like he has power over the earth. John tells this story where Jesus turned water into wine. And uh, John, after that, he begins to describe the character of Jesus. Like he gives an example where Jesus sees the distortion that's taking place at the temple. Uh, people who, people are caring more about their image and making money than they do following God. And so Jesus, he reveals his authority to everyone by telling them that he's going to destroy this temple and this way of doing things and rebuild it in three days. But they do not believe him. 
He's already kind of foreshadowing the cross and the resurrection and the new covenant that he came to put in place, but the Pharisees, they weren't having it. Like They had a pretty, pretty comfortable way of doing things that they had created for themselves. And Jesus, he was throwing a pretty big wrench into those plans. But Jesus, he calls them to live for more than just themselves. John, he, he's really trying to communicate the authority and the character of Jesus to his readers early on. Jesus is God. And this is who he is and what he cares about. Make no mistake about it. And so this is kind of where we pick it up in John chapter 4. Jesus, he's traveling back to Galilee. And to do so, he had to go through this place called Samaria. And the Jews and the Samaritans, they did not get along very well at all, which is a history lesson maybe for another day, but really boiled down in quick version of it. This goes all the way back to the 12 tribes in the Old Testament. And what eventually became Samaria was this group of people who worshiped false idols. They discounted a lot of scripture. They began to intermarry, which is like different forms of incest and things like that. And they also didn't go through the same hardships and suffering and captivity as the Jews did. And so the Jews, they really looked down on the Samaritans, and they would never be caught dead associating with or eating with, sharing dishes with, etc. They, they wouldn't be caught dead interacting with the Samaritan. So justified or not, th- there was a major beef between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so if you look with me in verse 5 of John chapter 4, we'll uh, pick up the story there. Again, Jesus, he's traveling to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into the town to buy food." And this probably isn't super accurate, but when I read this, I have a hard time. That little parenthesis there, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. I just read that as like John just being like, all right, we weren't there to tell him like he wasn't supposed to. Like, this is, this is on him, by the way. None of us were there. We weren't there to be like, yeah, you're not supposed to do that. Um, this one's on Jesus and not us. Again, probably not accurate. John's just an informational guy. Um, But Jesus, he asked for a drink. And the Samaritan woman said to him, like, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews? And Samaritans did not associate with each other. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's like, you don't even have a bucket telling me about water. What What are you talking about? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did all his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, what Jesus is describing here is, is the dwelling of the Spirit in our hearts. Like Jesus, the king of the metaphor here, he really wants us to know that the things we do on this earth are never going to satisfy us completely. Maybe for a moment, yeah, of course, but never completely. Like water in a well will always need to go back. We'll get thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. Whoever invites the Spirit of God to dwell in their heart and direct their steps will be fulfilled completely. Not like a well that you have to reach into, but like a fountain that pours out and is overflowing. And so the woman says, all right, bet. She says, all right, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I would like some of that, please. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. 
And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man that you live with now is not your husband. What you have, uh, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I, I can see that you are a prophet. And she doesn't even realize still that she's talking to Jesus, but she knows now that he is like, he's a, at least a prophet. And our, she continues here, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and so those who worship Him must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain, explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared this mic drop moment, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Again, John wants to make it abundantly clear to his readers who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And then later in verse 39, we continue reading and read that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And now there's, there's two things that really stuck out to me when I was reading this story. And I actually, I shared it with the Revive kids over the summer, and so they have a little preview to this message. But there, there were two big things that uh, stuck out to me in this story. And the first is how Jesus talks to the woman at the well. First of all, he actually talks to her. Like in a time in society where Samaritans, and I'm sure especially Samaritan woman, women, were seen as less than. But Jesus, he doesn't care about that. You see, Jesus, like the creator of the universe, he doesn't see the world how we see it. He sees it how he created it. So like the racial and socioeconomical political divides that we hold on to and function through don't mean anything to Jesus because those are man-made barriers that create division, not unity. Jesus, he's never been about status. In fact, Jesus, he flips it all upside down and says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's not about what you've made yourself into. It's about who made you. But again, I love how Jesus talks to the woman at the well. It jumped right off the page to me because if you rem remember what I said earlier, I, I talked about how easy it is to let the sin in our lives feed lies into our mind that tell us that we're no better than our sin. Like Nobody cares. We're not worth anything. There's no point in even trying to move forward. And it's not off base, I don't think, to, to assume that this is where the Samaritan woman was. From what we know about ancient Near Eastern culture, oftentimes the woman would, women would go get their water for the day in the morning or evening when it was cooler. Like some of them, they'd have to walk quite a ways, and so doing so in the cooler parts of the day just made more sense. And then because everyone had to get water, it was often a community thing. Like women would walk together to get water, no sense in being alone, right? But what do you notice about the Samaritan woman? There's two things. One, she's alone, and two, it's noon. She's alone at the hottest time of the day. And, and who knows, I can't say for sure, maybe she just got off to a late start and didn't get her water right away. But I think more likely, she was ashamed of the life that she was living and she would rather get water alone in the blistering heat 
than have to face any of the other women and potentially be mocked or looked down on. And then Jesus shows up. This to the woman who's living in sin and hurting, and how does he talk to her? He doesn't wag a finger and point down to her like everyone would have expected him to. No, he, he called her to something more. And maybe this isn't like a super crazy or mind-blowing thing for us to hear, but it's crazy for them because what this woman was likely used to, especially from the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of the time, was shame. Like, you stink, you're worthless, God doesn't love you, get out of my sight. But Jesus, he flips that around because he's the God of the universe who created you and me and he created this woman and he looks her in the eyes and he says, I know this is how you're living, but this isn't who you have to be. Here's the before, let me call you into the after. Here's where you are, let me call you into something more and to live into the purpose I created for you. You have purpose, you have value, I love you, I can offer you true fulfillment that the world can't offer. Again, I think this is so cool because even though we might understand this conceptually, how often do we find ourselves living into the lies of this world thinking like, this is just the way that it is, or this is just who I am now, I guess. These are the cards that I've been dealt. I remember feeling this way a couple years ago. Elise and I, we, we had just gotten married, and it's exciting, and it's fun. And one of the things that I was super excited about and, and had dreamed about for a long time when it comes to marriage was getting a bed where my feet don't hang off the end of it when I sleep. A lot of guys, they dream about getting in the MBA or becoming a doctor or a lawyer or something. I just wanted my feet on the bed when I sleep. And at 6'6", that's not a super easy thing to do. A king bed doesn't even do it. They're really wide, but they're the same length as the queen, which my feet hang off of quite a bit. And so I was excited to save up for a California king. It's got that extra length that I need. It sacrifices some of the width, so you do have to be like closer, whatever. But you, you, you sacrifice where you need to. And I got the extra length that I needed, and I love it. It's amazing. I will say I'm a little spoiled now because when we go and like, visit family or uh, stay with friends, I, I feel like Buddy the Elf, just an absolute giant, hanging off the end of the bed. But it didn't take long after getting married, uh, sleeping in the same bed, for a new experience to happen to me where I was awoke by a swift smack to the face by my starfish sleeping wife. And it was probably unintentional. I believe her when she says she's asleep and doesn't remember doing it, so it's fine. I don't think you need to call anyone for me. Uh, but I, I remember thinking after the second or third time it happened, like, all right, this is it. This is my life now. I don't get to sleep through, through the night no more. I just, I've got a lifetime of sleep smacks ahead of me. But I, I'm starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Here's where this story is going. There's hope for me yet because Elise, if you didn't know, uh, she's pregnant. Uh, we're a little over halfway there and she's been sleeping with this pregnancy pillow uh, to help her back, which is awesome. It, one, it functions, it helps her back. But two, it's basically like an adult-sized docketot. It just completely surrounds her. It's this big U-shaped pillow that really locks her in to her side of the bed. So even if she wanted to start swiping, she couldn't. And it's great. And so for now, I'm in the clear, uh, sleeping soundly. I'm no longer stuck in this is just the way that it is, which is so great. And now to be fair, that's a, that's a pretty ridiculous example for feeling stuck and, and settling into life just as the way it is. But what I, what I think can be just as ridiculous is how easily we can settle for the way that it is. 
when Jesus really wants to call us into something so much more. Again, what, what we see in how Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman is that he doesn't see her for what she's done or where she's at. He sees potential and shows her grace and love and compassion and he calls her into something more. Like He invites her into the life that he created her for and he does the exact same thing for you and for me. And I, I can't help but wonder, and this is the other thing that the thought that kind of popped into my head when I was reading through the story over the summer is that what would happen if I were to put myself in the shoes of the Samaritan woman? I mean, they'd probably be too small for starters, but what if I were the one at the well? What would Jesus have said to me? And I want to challenge you to think through this lens too. Like imagine with me for a second that you were in the place of this woman at the well, just you and Jesus. That's, that's kind of all I could think about as I was reading through the story. What would Jesus call out in me? Again, he doesn't condemn or shame or put down or write you off. He's inviting you to take one small step into the direction of the life that he has for you. It's an invitation, not condemnation. But at the same time, that doesn't dismiss the sin either. Like God sees the thing or the things in your life that are cutting you off from him and he wants to call them out because there's living water that satisfies and fulfills on the other side. It's just going to take a step through the in-between to get there. But take a second and think. Like I want us all together to take 30 seconds of awkward silence with me and just think through like if you were at the well, just you and Jesus, what would he call out in you? I'm not going to ask you afterwards. You can have an honest moment with yourself. Um, in fact, let me just pray really quick. God, I, I, I pray that you would help reveal to us the things that we're holding on to that are getting in the way and, and holding us back from our relationship with you. Help us in this moment. Reveal those things to us as we sit here and think. Amen. Like, let's just, let's just take 30 seconds and have an honest moment. What would Jesus call out in you? Now, I get that this can be uncomfortable. <laughs> One, because not, because not all of us are used to maybe taking moments for self-reflection like that, and maybe we also don't like the quiet, feels a little weird. Uh, but two, I think also because I don't think there's many people who really enjoy looking at and addressing the sin in their life. Which is hard, because like we all understand... We, we know that we all sin, we all fall short, that, but that doesn't make seeing it in the mirror any more fun. Because once we address that thing, whatever it is, it becomes undeniable, right? It's hard to avoid anymore. The, the woman at the well, she was confronted with her sin and she was kind of faced with this choice. She could either hide from it and live with it as like just the way that it is, or she could take one small step towards the living water that she had found through Jesus. And that wasn't easy. Like if we look, it happens really quick on paper, but you'll notice the first thing that she did was run to the people that she had just been avoiding earlier so that she could share the good news with them. She went to the well at noon so she didn't have to see anybody, but now she's got this stirring in her heart like she's got to go tell everybody what she's just witnessed. 
Like I said earlier, sometimes you have to go backwards before you can make real progress forwards. And I think it's the same with our faith too. Sometimes it takes addressing and processing things in our past in order to allow ourselves the freedom to move forwards. But I get it. We don't want to go backwards. It's not fun. But think about like what could happen. Well, what's the potential if we were to humble ourselves enough to peel back the layers and to actually process? God, he encourages us not to dwell on our past and not to let those things hold us back because he wants to do a new thing in us. And sometimes all it takes from us is a step forward in the right direction, just one small step. So the question that I have for you this week is, what does that look like for you? Like, what is that step forward for you? Maybe it's to love your wife a little better this week to love your husband a little better this week. Maybe you're like, Jeff, I do that every week. It's like, all right, do another step. But maybe, maybe you need to love your kids a little more this week. Maybe for all the revived kids in the room, you need to love your siblings a little more this week. Do a little less screaming at them. I feel like that could be a huge step forward. Maybe, I don't know, maybe for you, you need to check into rehab. Maybe you need to delete that app off of your phone. Maybe you need to be brutally honest with someone in your life that you've been hiding something from. Maybe you need to commit to going to counseling or follow through with your word or be a blessing to someone in your life. Maybe you need to commit to reading your Bible this week and, and really getting to know God a little better through his self-revelation to us in scripture. Or maybe you need to spend some more time with God this week in prayer. And I know that's a pretty long list. I know, it's, again, it's not exhaustive. There's many different steps we can take. Um, and I also want you to know that I, don't, I, I know I don't exactly know what the circumstances of your life are to tell you exactly what your small step should be. But I have a pretty good feeling that doing those things would be a pretty good start. Like reading your Bible, praying, loving the people around you more. Like these are the things that we can consistently be doing to take steps closer to Jesus. My only worry, if I'm being honest with you this morning, the, my only worry in saying that here on a Sunday morning is that it might be a little too familiar for some of us. Like I can stand up here and I can encourage you to, to make those things a regular part and rhythm in your life, but there's got to be someone in the room here who's inevitably thinking like, okay, Jeff, but like what can I actually do? Like what's the quick fix? I need a silver bullet. Don't you have anything better than that? Like reading your Bible, praying? Like seriously, I've, I'm really struggling here. I need real advice. And my response would be like, okay, well, ha have you been bringing it before God in prayer? Like, like talking with your small group and house groups? And, or have you, have you searched for wisdom in the Bible? And they're like, okay, well, no, I don't have time for all of that. And part of my heart is just having this like real life cobby moment where I'm just like, <laughs> maybe, maybe we could just give it a, give it a shot this one time. We'll try it for a little bit, see where it goes. But again, you see, I think sometimes our familiarity, it can hurt us. If, you, if you've been around church for any length of time, you'll notice that I haven't necessarily said anything that's too groundbreaking or earth-shattering this morning. This is, maybe for lack of better terms, like Christianity 101. But I think the problem with our view of 101 level principles sometimes is that as we progress in our faith, we assume that we've outgrown some of the 101 level stuff. Like maybe you've really started to learn about the importance of what it means to tithe and to give your first 10% so that you're no longer clinging to what's 
yours, but you're developing this posture of generosity and opening open hands to the things and the people around you. Or maybe you've noticed how incredible it is to be involved with community and you've joined a house group and it's awesome. Or maybe you're serving here on Sundays or with your house group every month or on Reach Des Moines Sundays or at the block party coming up here and, and you feel like you're growing to 201 level Christianity or even 301 or 401. And now of course, these are all arbitrary concepts. But again, as we grow as Christians, I think it's important that we remember that just because we're growing, it doesn't mean we just forget everything that we've done before. We don't graduate past the basics. The basics are the foundation for which our entire future and faith are based off of. It's kind of like me back in eighth grade confirmation at our church growing up where I just was like, once this is done, once I'm done, finally done with this stupid class, then I can graduate from church. And that's what I thought. Couldn't wait. Like, I hated going. It was awful. And then, uh, thankfully, a few years later, I uh, got invited to a youth group and started to actually develop this relationship with Jesus. And I got to know him through reading my Bible and prayer and community and serving and giving. And what I found, like 12, 13 years later, is that those basic things that pastors say, and, the, and they encourage us to do regularly, like read our Bibles and pray and love the people around us, they are still and they always will be so so valuable. They are foundational to a meaningful walk with Jesus. They're not beneath us and boring. Like they're, they're what prop us up and propel us forward. And so again, whatever your one step, one small step looks like this week, know that there's no step that's too simple or ordinary or plain. I'll say it again. It's those small, regular, ordinary steps that lead to a big difference. And if I could encourage you just one last time to think specifically about one small step that you can take this week, that'd be great because if there's anything that I want for you this morning as you leave here today, it's I want you to know that you know that you know that the God of the universe who created you and knit you together, he loves you and he wants to call you into a life with him that brings hope and fulfillment. I think it's too easy in our world today to believe the lie that you're no better than your pain or your hurt or your past and, or what's been done to you and there is no healing or future for you either. Like this is just, it's too late for you. This is just kind of it. This is who I am. And man, this one, it really gets me. Like it stirs something up in me because I've seen and met just so many people and it breaks my heart every time I see someone who just believes the lie that there's no way forward. And they reduce their identity to the hurt in their past and they just sit in that dark place. And this lie, it's, it's born out of this like performance identity that, that my worth comes from what I've done instead of what Jesus has done. Which we already know, conceptually, we know that isn't true. But then we look at that speed bump or that hurdle or that mountain in our past and we just convince ourselves or believe those lies that I'm, I'm no better than that. And I, I'm guilty of this too. Like I... There's pain in my past that I've let define me for a season. I think we all understand what this is like. We've all experienced pain and sin in our lives, but we live in a broken world. Like It's impossible to escape no matter how hard we try. Sin is real, and there's so much damage and weight and pain in this world around us. And I need you to know this morning that it does not define you. It doesn't. No matter how far you've gone, what you've done, where you've been, or what's been done to you, it is impossible to work your way out of the love of God. And that's because of who He is. Like, it doesn't matter how many steps you've taken away from God, it only takes one to get back. Your pain, it doesn't define you. Hope and healing in Jesus is what defines you. But here's the thing. If we truly want to see life transformation, it's going to require us to let go of control, 
and to take one small step into the direction of Jesus. Kind of like the woman at the well, you may be skeptical at first, but the hope and fulfillment that you'll find in Jesus, if you just trust him and take one small step through the in-between on your way to the after, it is so worth it because he'll be right there alongside you to walk you through. And so again, what's that step going to be for you? Now, really quick as I close things out, uh, I'll invite the band, they can come back up and get ready so we can have a chance to respond in worship. But really quick, as I close things out, I just want to peel it all back and kind of boil down what we've talked about this morning, because it was kind of a lot and a little all over the place. But just as a reminder, like again, the hardest part about the before and the after is the in-between. And that while it may be difficult, the in-between is where the most work and life change happens. It's where Jesus takes us from where we are and he transforms us into who he created us to be. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He isn't angry. He, he doesn't condemn you along the way. He cares for you. Like He loves you. He wants a relationship with you that, that with it brings peace and hope and joy and love and fulfillment that we can't get on our own by chasing after the things of this world. And while it may seem basic, like reading your Bible, praying, spending time with God, getting connected to a house group, serving, giving, being at church, like while those may seem basic and familiar, they're actually foundational in the lifelong pursuit of becoming more like Jesus every day. And making our way to the after, it doesn't happen in a day or a few weeks or maybe even a year. It's this process of just taking one small step at a time that eventually leads you to a place where you can look back and see just how far you've come and just how many incredible ways God has blessed you and used your gifts along the way. You, you are not stuck where you are. In fact, Jesus, he wants to invite you into something more. And it all starts with one small step. You guys pray with me. God, I, just, I ask that you'd meet us in this place. Just as we sit here and process this afternoon, but also this week, I pray that you would just reveal to us the things in our lives that are putting up barriers and creating walls between us and you. God, help us tear down those walls, even if it's uncomfortable for a moment. Whatever it is, whether it's this big, giant mountain in front of us or whether we feel like we've got it, I don't know, life's pretty good, we got things figured out and it's all pretty good, just reveal to us the things that are creating this barrier between us. Whether it's pride, whether it's hurt, whether it's a deep, repetitive sin issue, God, bring this to the surface so that we can take meaningful steps towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.